I invite you to turn your Bible this morning to Matthew as we begin chapter 23. And this morning we will not cover the whole of chapter 23. We'll look together at verses 1 through 12. As I got closer to the message this morning, I thought it'd be helpful to slow down a little bit on these opening 12 verses. Beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But do not do all their deeds, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders. For one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray that the manna of his truth would come down this morning. And so we ask for that, our God. We've read your word. We do not presume that we can perceive it or ourselves as we really are. We ask this morning not only for a historical study, a better understanding of who the Pharisees were, and, but we understand that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and is given for us here this morning, as well as your people throughout the generations. Help us to hear our King preaching this morning through his word. Amen. And I am not that King. You know that. But that is the reality of the scriptures, that whenever the word of God is read truly, and there's a true Christian preaching of the word, that preaching does not originate with any man, mere man. It is given to Christ's church by Christ himself, ultimately. So we always want to be listening for our master's voice in the preaching of his word. This passage, this chapter, is significant for a number of reasons, but one of them is that Perhaps we 
would know this on a cursory reading. But in the Gospel of Matthew, this is the last recorded public sermon of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, he is the preacher. He came announcing and preaching good news, the good news of the kingdom. His whole ministry has been one predominantly of preaching and teaching the people. Yes, healing. Yes, ministering to their needs. But overwhelmingly, our Messiah is a preacher. He came to announce the truth. We come this morning to what is the last recorded public sermon of Jesus. From now on, after chapter 23, he will be speaking specifically to the small group of his disciples. And you see in verse 1, here Jesus spoke to the crowds. He's in the courts of the temple precincts. He has had in the presence of the crowd this verbal engagement with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, all trying to take him down. Jesus has silenced his enemies in the form of these false teachers. And now the king, Israel's king, having been rejected, gives one last message to the people of Jerusalem. It's remarkable. And perhaps what's most surprising to us is the content of his last sermon. I mean, if you were to pick what would be the last thing that Jesus would leave Jerusalem with, the people of Israel with, what would it be? In our generation, among evangelicals, it certainly would not be what Jesus does here. It would be maybe a basic explanation of the gospel, That would be, of course, wonderful. It's good. Jesus gives that. Maybe it would be something more on terms of the Sermon on the Mount and ethical teaching. And maybe it would be comfort. Maybe it would be help with encouragement. But instead, we find Jesus warning the people. Warning the people. Jesus is engaged in a truth war with the liar of liars who is Satan, the enemy. And in his whole ministry, Satan was active. Remember the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and then from there the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness where he is tempted by the devil, the evil one. He goes into conflict with our arch enemy, the arch enemy of his people. If Jesus is going to be king over his people, he must take out or face the leader of the evil forces. And Satan dogs Jesus, his whole ministry, and he works primarily through these false teachers, false religion. We don't want to hear it this morning as modern evangelicals, but Jesus, our master, in his last sermon to his people, to this crowd, issues a sermon warning his people about false teachers, false religion. That is so not cool today. We have to be open. We have to be affirming. We we can't certainly publicly call anyone to account. That's not gracious according to the spirit of our age. But mark it, 
Jesus, who is above all the most loving man who's ever walked this earth, the king who cares for his people, the man who wants men and women to come into the kingdom, leaves them with a severe warning to look out for false religion, false teachers. There are two dangers that Jesus warns us about in the crowd there on that day. He's already addressed the the Pharisees. He's kind of done with them directly. But now he's going to talk about them. And the two dangers are the false teachers. Number one, the false teachers who keep men and women from the kingdom. That's danger number one. False teachers who keep men and women from the kingdom. And maybe I'll expand that a little bit. False teachers who keep men and women from enjoyment of the kingdom. I mean, the greatest danger is you don't even get into the kingdom. But in our day and age, you can have men and women who are true believers in Jesus Christ who are robbed by false teachers of enjoyment of the freedom and the grace and the love that is in the kingdom. So danger number one is false teachers who keep men and women from the kingdom and from enjoyment of the kingdom. Danger number two is that we become like those false teachers. It's easy, in a way, for us as modern evangelicals to, to beat up on the Pharisees. That, that they're a great punching bag. Everybody, and in fact, no matter what stripe of evangelical we are, we, we can probably get in a room and agree, yeah, those Pharisees, they're bad. Ah, they're bad. And they were bad. But notice that Jesus warns in verse 3, do and observe generally. In other words, the, the Pharisees were, were the Bible teachers of the day, but Jesus says, do not do according to their deeds. Do not do according to their deeds. So Jesus is doing two things in his sermon here. He's warning them about the false teachers, and then he's warning us and all those who were gathered that day. He, here's how you can, here's, you should know all these false teachers, what they're like, and he's warning us against doing what they do. Those are the two dangers. And that shapes our sermon this morning, our time together, is thinking about not only what are the marks of false teachers that we need to be aware of, but in all of our considering of the marks of false teachers, we are examining ourselves this morning. Do I do as these false teachers do? And it's there where up front, I must tell you, this is no historical study for each one of us has something to learn from Jesus' words here. And each one, of, each one of us, perhaps to varying degrees, can be rebuked and corrected and trained in righteousness. So let's look first at the marks of false teachers. We have seven here that I want to point out to you. I could add more. But we're observing what Jesus says about these false teachers. And he's going to teach us more in the remainder of the chapter. We'll look at this, Lord willing, next Sunday morning. But he's warning us about, he's warning the crowd about the false teachers. And notice, he's doing it probably with the Pharisees right there. 
Whoa. I mean, so much, again, for our day and age, it says, no, you, you can't call out names. That's unkind. These men are misleading men and women and leading them away from the kingdom. And Jesus takes no prisoners and calls them out, names them. The scribes and Pharisees, he's warning them about the scribes and Pharisees. Who are they? Well, Pharisee is from uh, a term of, of being, a, means being separated. They were known as the separated ones. They had the semblance of being holy. You might think of them as kind of the, the monks of the day. They were known for being somewhat austere in their religion, serious, orthodox, hardcore, the real deal. They were weird, but the people revered them. The people revered them because the Pharisees were effectively their pastors. They were the ones who, the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes were among the Pharisees, perhaps the ones that that really knew the scriptures. Maybe they were like the Bible professors. They copied the scriptures. They, they were the geeks, the nerds among the Pharisees, if you will. The scribes and the Pharisees were the people's pastors. They were the leaders of the synagogues. They were the ones in the general populace who, who taught the people what it meant to be a member of the kingdom of God, a follower of God. And Jesus calls them out as false teachers and lists several, makes several observations about their behavior and their attitude that he wants to point out and expose so that his people who will hear his voice are equipped to see a false teacher and to know one when they see one. Number one, they bear a title. They bear a title. Now, it's not necessarily wrong to have a title, I have a title, pastor, teacher. It's given to me in the Bible. You have titles at work. It's not bad. We have titles in the military. We have titles in the home, husband, wife, son, daughter. They're not inherently bad, but but I'm just pointing out here that these Pharisees and scribes, they own the title of Pharisee. They, They have a religious title. Maybe I should... They bear a religious title. Maybe that's a little more clear. They don't just bear any title. They bear a religious title that makes a claim that they they are reverent, that they are religious. They have a certain connection to God or to the kingdom or to Christ. We might expand this by way of application to consider that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you too bear a title, and you claim to wear it. You don't maybe like brag about it, but you're a Christian. Other people around you, presumably, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, know you are a Christian, a Christian. You're a man or woman who claims to believe that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God incarnate, that he lived and died on the cross for your sins so that you are saved from hell and given the promise of future and heaven on earth. This, you're a Christian. In this pagan culture, that stands out. And you bear it. 
Just like the Pharisees were Pharisees, the scribes were scribes, you're a Christian, I'm a pastor. Some of us have specific roles, religious titles. It doesn't mean, I'm not suggesting that everyone who bears that title is wrong. You can't but bear that title. And in of itself, Pharisee perhaps wasn't a bad word. We are to be separated unto God. And scribes spoke of what they did. They were those who wrote the law of God and copied it. But they bear the title falsely. And in that vein, we might examine ourselves. How do we bear our title? Do we bear it truly? In keeping with what it signifies or falsely? Secondly, the mark of a false teacher, they are self-appointed authorities. Self-appointed authorities. Jesus in Verse 2 says, the scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. The picture there is is one of authority. Moses was revered, and rightly so, as the greatest prophet, as the giver of the law, humanly speaking, God being the author. He is the authority in their religion, Moses. And the scribes and Pharisees appointed themselves to have that authority. They were not submissive. They were not submitted. They were self-appointed. And in our day, oh, what a danger this is, particularly in a culture like ours where everybody's an authority. We actually are a very, it's a strange thing. We're a very anti-authority culture Everybody's an authority, and so we are all prone to think that we're an authority in our pride. We, especially in more free church tradition, what I mean by that is, you know, we are not part of an official organized denomination. We believe that each church, gospel church, is autonomous. It means that every local congregation is under the authority of the word of God and every local congregation, its members and its leaderships, leadership make decisions pertaining to that local assembly. And we believe that is good. We believe that is true. But there's a, perhaps a special danger in our free church tradition, nonconformist tradition, where there are pastors. I'm trying to be as practical as I can here for a moment. There are, there are many pastors, and how did they become a pastor? And if you, if you work back and look at, at it, it was really self-promotion and some other people who gave authority along the way. It's a total aside, but part of our guarding, not a total aside, I suppose it's a bit of a side practical point, is that you as believers ought to be very, very concerned about the process in which those who preach and teach to you how they come to that position. We ought to be very concerned to follow the Lord's commands in Scripture regarding qualifications of elders and deacons, leaders in the church. I, I, am, I am a bit alarmed in our day how low the standards are, have become. Both in the professional clergy class, if you will, and the lay leadership. It's not good. 
It's men appointing themselves rather than submitting to God, submitting to the truth of God's word, submitting to the careful analysis and judgment of the people of God. But, of course, in formal denominations, this happens as well. Whether it be Roman Catholic or Anglican, you have guys wearing funny hats and robes. We've seen a lot of that in the funeral of of the queen, who was, by all accounts, apparently a, a sincere Christian. But we see in official denominations, more formal contexts, men who somehow rose through the ranks to bishop or priest, and you wonder, how did that happen? And they were essentially self-appointed. At a personal level, maybe as a, as a Christian, we might examine ourselves this morning. Am I, am I a self-appointed authority? Do I go around acting as though, as a believer, I'm an expert? Or am I marked by humility? Jesus is going to have something to say by humility. But being a self-appointed authority is not a good thing. I, I can honestly say I stand here by God laying hold of me, and I did not make any plans to be here you know, in preaching. I never thought I'd be a pastor. I was in my third year of seminary. I didn't think I'd be a pastor. That's strange, I know. But it's true. I thought I'd work with my dad and teach in Bible Sunday school until God, through various means, made it clear through godly people in his church that I had to follow the call and to preach. But it wasn't me waking up one day saying, wow, I want to be a pastor. It was a process of identification, of training, of examination. I had about 15 to 18 guys at my ordination council, and I thank God for that. Very uncomfortable experience. One of the men showed up with my paper, my doctoral statement, like basically red, red with ink. I could see it where I was being examined. He was about 15 feet from me, and it was just full of red ink. Oh, no. And I was asked every hard question. And I'm glad for that. But the point is that we do not appoint ourselves. These false teachers are self-appointed authorities. Thirdly, they are hypocrites. This is most obvious. Jesus says in verse 3, you know, because the Pharisees and scribes are in the position of formal authority, show them honor, show them deference, but do not do according to their deeds. Why? And here's the key, verse 3. They say and do not do. They say and do not do. They say one thing and do not do it or do another. They are hypocrites. It is one of the constant burdens that I have, that every true believer has, that when we disciple others, <laughs> we examine ourselves and we ask ourselves, do I believe this? Do I intend to do this? It is all too easy, even in our parenting, moms and dads, for us to have some expectation of our children. And we ask ourselves, well, do I do that? Do I intend to do that? Hypocrisy. They're hypocrites. 
I, one, one example is seared in my memory of a pastor that was um, in a semi-large church and everybody thought of him as a powerful preacher and engaging and, and people were wild by his sermons. And when I would meet with him in private, not anybody else knew this, but his jokes would be questionable. And as a young man, I rarely ever heard him saying something to me like, hey, let's pray. He rarely talked to me about God or about Jesus. It was all about other things. There was this public platform persona about God and Jesus and following him with passion. And yet in private, there was a manifest, evident absence of a love for God or concern with the things of God. Hypocrites. Fourthly, false teachers are marked by unbiblical, unreasonable expectations that they place upon others. They place unbiblical, unreasonable expectations upon others. Jesus says, verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. That's what they love to do, these false teachers. And the Pharisees were, were famous for it. The word of God is challenging for a sinner to understand and to obey. In fact, we cannot do it except for being born again, changed from the inside out, and being aided by the Holy Spirit. It's not that the law, the word of God, is somehow impossible or unreasonable. It is good. It is pure. The law leads to life. Psalm 119. The psalmist in Psalm 119 does not bemoan how the law of God is such a bore, is such a pain, is so, such a burden. No, the law of God is perfect. Psalm 19, it restores the soul. But the Pharisees took the teaching of the law of the Bible and they added to it numerous and un- innumerable additions and expectations. And they may be changed. In one minute, it's they're on you because you didn't do this. And the next minute, they're on you because you didn't do this, that. Unbiblical, unreasonable expectations. And this is a mark not only of false teachers, but of individual Christians. We can do this. I will say this. We might think that modern-day evangelicalism doesn't do this. Because if anything, modern-day evangelicalism, pastors are light, they're cool, they're hip. Um, they talk a lot about the love and the grace of God, and that's good and, um, insofar as that goes. Uh, and they don't teach much law. There's not much concern for the holiness of God. There's not much concern for the true worship of God. It's just be who you are, come as you are, that kind of thing. But in reality they still place a burden upon men and women because they teach them a religion, a form of Christianity that is false. And it's all about you as an individual modern evangelical Christian getting your life just so, so that you can be engaged in this kingdom project or that or 
They talk to you about mission and they talk to you about this, this passion for God or this love for Jesus and they stand up and they get you all jazzed up and yet they rob you of the very fuel that would provide you with that. They call you to a life of exciting and radical service for Jesus but you're not taught the scriptures and you're not taught about your God and your Father and his glory, and the nature of the Son, and the wonder of the Spirit. So you're, you're given like a pep rally, you're pumped up to go out onto the field, or into combat, and you're naked, you're not equipped. And so it's laying this burden that somehow you're supposed to be this, this radical Christian for Jesus, serving him, and you're supposed to do it on as minimal teaching from the word of God as possible. And it's a lie. It's not true. Places a burden upon men and women. No wonder so many give up at the end of the day. This pastor's up there talking about this excitement and loving and living for Jesus. I have no idea what he's talking about. I don't even know the God he's talking about. I'm done. So it's not just the Pharisees and the, it's not just what we think of classic legalism and, and talking to people about how they dress or, or what they listen to or don't listen to or what they watch and what they don't watch. This is a broader, this is a general pattern of these false teachers place unbiblical, unreasonable expectations upon others. I'm constantly concerned as a leader that I do not place upon you as a flock anything higher or lower than the expectations of the scriptures. But we as individual Christians can do this as well. Maybe we examine ourselves this morning, husbands and wives. The expectations we place on each other. Does our spouse live under this weight of a burden that's unreasonable? Somehow you believe in the theory that We're all sinners, and yet somehow you expect your spouse not to be one. You can be, you can receive all the grace and forgiveness of God, but your spouse, he or she, they're a pain in the neck. They need to get their act in order. This is much more common than just the Pharisees and the scribes. Parents, we are classic at this. Imposing upon our children in the name of Christianity expectations that are not necessarily spelled out in the word of God. We need to be careful. Fifthly, along with placing unbiblical and reasonable expectations, false teachers lack compassion. Lack compassion. Jesus says, verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger They just heap on expectations, heap on the judgment, heap on the guilt without any compassion, without a concern for a soul that is weighed down with guilt or a soul that is ignorant and doesn't know better. False teachers just heap on the expectations with No intention to come alongside and lift up the discouraged soul. To remind them 
of the love of their Father, of the love of their Savior, with a rebuke and correction to remind of the grace that has been provided and is all-sufficient in Christ. They lack compassion. They do not even see the pain or burdens of others around them. They're oblivious. Too bad. They're uncaring. And it is sad and it is frightening to realize how within many of us, this, this is a real temptation to really be indifferent and insensitive to the cares around us. And, and pastors, we can be, we can become this. We can become professionals, God forbid, and not really even really care for the sheep. We are to, as Christians and certainly as leaders in Christ's church, we are to see and to be aware of the pain and burdens of others around us. Sometimes it's the burden of sin. Sometimes we're thinking, how can I help this person who's weighed down by this sin pattern? How can I help them? How can I come alongside them? How can I pray for them? Are we just, oh, well, that's the way they are? Are we careless and heartless? Or do we, do we care? The, the, I didn't think of this, but that old spiritual, brethren, we have met to worship. I didn't even think of that in connection with the sermon until right now. But it calls us in that hymn to ask us, do we see our mothers and our fathers and our children Speaking of the culture around us, these people around us, do we see them in their lostness, in the darkness, in the pain of the consequences of their sin? Are we indifferent? I know that we must live in this world. We, we can't constantly be consumed with the pain of other people's lives. We can't. We, we, we can't. Jesus, Jesus, even Jesus lived among the people, and he had time when he slept. He had time when he got away with his disciples. But it's a heart attitude. And these false teachers, they just don't have it. They don't care. They have little concern for the pain and burdens of others. Sixth, they are motivated by self-interest. Number six, they are motivated by self-interest. Verse five, Jesus says they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. That's the motive. It's a purpose statement. They do what they do to be noticed. That has to do with self-interest. They love the place of honor. So Jesus is exposing their motive. It's not necessarily wrong to be placed at a place of honor. It's not wrong to have a respectful greeting. Jesus isn't condemning that. He's talking, he's exposing their motive. That's what they're about. Their love is, they're not serving people for God's sake. They're not serving the people of God for their sake. They're in it for their own sake. It's about them. It's about their ministry. It's about their impact. It's about their following. They are motivated by self-interest. Oh, are we particularly susceptible to this in our day? And none of us is exempt from this. None of us. We live in a culture that values and lifts up self-promotion above all. 
We have entire media platforms that are built on that value. I am somewhat alarmed, I have to say, by the, I I don't want to judge in every case, but evangelical pastors that, you know, their Instagram posts or or whatever, and I, yes, I have Instagram because I want to see what some of my family, you know, I just want to, I don't want, I do, but I don't really post anything. And if I did, my daughters would probably say, Dad, no, don't, don't, just, just stay quiet. But it's helpful. I guess I need to be aware of where a lot of people are. And I mean, not generally. I don't. My point is that in that, I, you might imagine as a pastor that there are other pastors that I see their Instagram posts or whatever. And I'm a little concerned about this idea that pastors, preachers need to be constantly kind of putting themselves out there to maintain their status, their following. That I don't know. It just, I don't know. Would Paul have an Instagram? I don't know. That's a separate question. I don't want to. I believe those platforms can be used for good. I do believe that. But there's a poison there that's all too easy to imbibe. It is so subtle. These false teachers, these scribes and Pharisees, they had the appearance of godliness, of love for God, but they just love themselves. Closely related, number seven, they, false teachers love being honored by others. They love being honored by others. Jesus says, verse six, seven, and eight, they, seven and eight, rather six and seven, they love the place of honor at banquets. I mean, that's what they crave. They're thinking about, before they go to a banquet, they're thinking about, well, am I going to get the seat in front of Rabbi so-and-so? And pastors, oh, it's shameful, can quietly crave a larger church or more following or the recognition. They love being honored. They love, they love the notoriety. And isn't this true not only of leaders but also of Christians? We bear the title Christian, but how much we crave the, the, the spotlight, how much we crave our story to be known, our narrative to be the movie that everybody sees and is amazed by. False teachers love being honored by others. So here are some marks, and we'll see some more next Sunday as Jesus will go on to expose the the Pharisees and the scribes in particular. But in the remaining of the time this morning, I want to examine Jesus' correction or alternative provided in verses 8 through 12. If he's given us the marks of a false teacher, and along the way I've tried to give you some hints as to how we might broaden that and examine ourselves, even if we're not a teacher... I want to move now to, if Jesus talks about a false teacher, he now helps us by giving some marks of a true teacher. And we might expand that to say a true disciple. A true disciple. After all, it follows, if if there is someone who's a true teacher of the kingdom and of Christ and the gospel, they are first and foremost a disciple themselves. Really, I just have two points. 
Jesus here tells us that a true teacher, in contrast to the Pharisees and the scribes, directs you to God and Christ. That's what they do in their ministry. They don't direct you to, to themselves. They don't, you're not left with the person, the man or the woman in their ministry. Ultimately, you're left with thinking about God and Christ, and we'll see that in the text. And then secondly, they serve with humility. They serve with humility. Look with me first at verses 8 through 10. Jesus says, Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. And this maybe confuses us. And immediately we're concerned because our our pastors and elders, leaders in the church, does this mean we don't call our pastor teacher? And strangely, if we actually take away from Jesus's warning, if we're obsessed with don't ever say rabbi, don't ever say teacher, don't ever say father, I mean, don't even call your dad father, you're actually committing the error of the Pharisees and the scribes, (laughs) taking Jesus's words and missing the point. What is Jesus's point? In the context, it's clear that the scribes and the Pharisees loved the titles as self-promotions. They loved the titles because they directed men and women to themselves. You could add to this bishop, priest, pope. People ask me sometimes if I'm the senior pastor, and I get a kick out of that. Yes, I'm I'm the lead on the staff. We have no staff. You have missed that. I'm it. I'm the senior of me, I guess. Uh, I have other brothers who are elders along with me, but pastor as a title. Lead teacher, executive pastor. There's one that's positive. These I understand large churches may need that kind of manager. But what's Jesus getting at? Is he really, is his greatest concern in this last sermon to people is to give them, whatever you do, don't call somebody this. No, no, no. What he's getting at is... If you are a true teacher, what you want to do is to direct men and women to the true teacher, who is God and Christ. A true teacher, verse 8, remembers that he's just one of the brethren. He is a man who, as like other men, a sinner, he is distinguished not by who he is, but by his function. There is some day when I will no longer be a pastor. I'll no longer be a teacher. That's not my identity. That's my role. That's my function. But my identity is I'm just made in the image of God. I shouldn't say just. I'm made in the image of God like you. And I am a child, a son of God, and a believer in Jesus Christ, adopted by God. I'm a recipient of grace like you. That's my identity. I have a function in the church a function that I've been given, a role, that's not my value. 
And my job is not to direct you to me, but to direct you to your heavenly Father, to your Lord Jesus Christ, and to the Holy Spirit who indwells you. That's my job. It's to leave you Sunday by Sunday thinking about God, thinking about Christ. And that's how you know a true minister's ministry. After you've sat under that ministry for time, are you learning more about your God, about your Father, about his holiness, about his love, about his judgment, about his mercy? Are you learning more about your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Are you, are you walking away with, wow, I, I, I was helped today to see something about Jesus that I was not clear to me before? Is the greatest impression you're left with the man, or is it the God and the Christ that the man proclaims? We value and we esteem and we thank the men who teach us faithfully about God and Christ. We love them and esteem them because we understand in God's plan in building the church, they have a unique role and they are given as gifts to us by Christ. And so we appreciate them, but that's as far as it goes. Our eyes are not on any man. They are on God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. So a true teacher, Jesus is saying here, he's, is someone who does not allow himself to be the, the end of people's admiration. That's what Jesus is getting at. Don't be called rabbi. In other words, direct people to Christ who is your teacher. Verse 9, don't let anyone call you father. Why? Because... Your job is to teach them about their heavenly father. Do not be called leaders. Why? Because you're, you want, you don't want them to be impressed with your leadership. You want to constantly direct them to Christ who is their leader. A true teacher directs us to God and Christ. That's Jesus's point. We do have leaders in the church. The New Testament commands us to have leaders in the church. Paul addresses them as leaders. So Jesus is not here removing certain words out of our vocabulary. Rather, he's talking about the direction of a man's ministry. Does he direct you to himself or does he direct you continually and constantly to the God in Christ that he was sent to tell you about? Secondly, The mark of a true teacher and a true disciple is humility. We've already seen this, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount and, oh, as Jesus modeled it in his life, as he's humbled himself. Jesus says in verses 11 and 12, The greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The mark of a true teacher at the end of the day is humility. This is tough. Because that humility cannot be feigned. It cannot be fake. It's, it is what it is. It's either there or it's not. You can fake humility. And I think we've probably all met somebody who, who really slathered on the appearance of being humble and being a servant. And, but you're around them for a while and you realize they don't really want to serve me. They're in this for themselves. It's a heart that will reveal itself 
It will. Can't be faked. And a true teacher does not exalt himself. He doesn't put his name out there. He doesn't look to advance his ministry. A true teacher and a true disciple, it's true of all of us, is a Christian who, before his or her Lord, who hung on a cross for him or her, lifts up his or her head, as it were, from being on their face and lifted up by God. And when eyes of, of wonder, as we sang this morning, amazing wonder, has a heart, oh God, you have loved me so, you sent your son to serve me so, in the time I remain, please, what can I do to serve your people? And you're you and your people. How can I serve? That's the mark of a true disciple and of a true leader, a true teacher. They serve. The church isn't there for the pastor. The pastor is there for the people. Doesn't mean, by the way, as disciples and as leaders, that we do necessarily what people want. We are under orders and we have instructions. And sometimes serving means doing what Christ's people don't want. We get very little of that today, again, in our evangelical climate where we are consumer culture. And so I was reminded this week through a godly man that I, uh, in his books, I I admire. And he he just pointed out that in these days of evangelical leadership and business marketing and all that, that so often leadership in the church today is nothing more than what will make the people most happy and secure my job. A true teacher, a true leader, is willing to even sacrifice his relationship in the service of those people, his relationship with them. So there's a powerful message here from our Lord for all of us here this morning. We are warned because the world is full of false teachers. And we are alerted by our Lord. We are to be on the watch. We are to live at peace. We are to grow in the knowledge and grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to carry out our Christian lives. But mark it, our Lord in his last public sermon says, watch out. He doesn't say, don't worry about it. Be nice. It'll all work out in the end. He does not say that. I hope in my ministry, pretty much you hear two dominant themes. Here is your God and your Christ. Here is your God and your Christ. Here's who he is. Here's how he loves you. Here's what he would have you to do. That's the one major thing. Who is your God? And then you regularly hear me saying, watch out. Be careful. Why? Because that's what your Lord does. Not only here, through the remainder of the New Testament. It's live, folks. It's a spiritual war. It's a truth war. And our enemy is active and scheming. And he is constantly bombarding the true church, the people of God, wherever they are found, in local churches, 
with false teachers. Let's be wary. And then most of all, this morning, perhaps, a message we can take is examine our humility. Is it about us? Is it about our life? Is it about our story? Is it about what we're interested in? Even in our talking with one another, I want to ask, do you ask other people questions about themselves? And then when they answer, do you listen? There's a tendency in our culture, it's all about us. It's how much, how much information can I get out to this person about me and what I'm interested in while they're here? Where if we're humble, aren't we serving one another through listening, asking questions? It's just an example. Humility, loved ones, is the chief mark of a true leader, true, disciple, true teacher, and a true disciple. May God grant that we are careful and wary and that we live before Christ in humility. Let's pray. God, we are a bit frightened because we understand that the scribes and Pharisees, most of them are blind to their own sin, and we can be too. We're frightened a bit by the warning you've given us, and we would ask that you would show us our own hearts. Come and expose the Pharisee and scribe in us and Take that spirit away. And before you, in the presence of the Father, our God, and the Lord Jesus Christ, may we be humbled. And may we be turned from consumption with ourselves and turned outward in love to one another. We pray this, that we may please you. In Jesus' name, amen.